the ill are overrepresented. Where isolation, humiliation, and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view. The people who work in the prison system would have another. And I think it's up to people to decide uh, you know, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio, 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. Hello and welcome to Doing Time Show. I'm Peter. And I'm Marissa. This is 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM on the dial, streaming live on www.3cr.org.au. And as Peter said, this is the Doing Time Show. And we're starting off... First of all, speaking with Brett Collins from Justice Action, who we were meant to interview some weeks ago now, and we've interviewed him quite extensively about the human rights of prisoners and some of the wonderful work that Justice Action is doing. And today we're going to be speaking to Brett about a report that they, Justice Action have written and some great work that they have done about the outstanding issues that is causing concern with inmates to the point that they are having psychological issues, emotional outbursts and are just generally depressed. Now, the reason for this is that there's been quite a lot of building of rapid prisons. And what that means is that there's a lot of overcrowding, there's a lot of dormitory type situations where prisoners are almost on top of each other. And this is actually happening in New South Wales. So we're going to be speaking to Brett about this very, very concerning issues shortly. Then after that, we'll speak with Marianne McKay, who's an Aboriginal activist from Western Australia. And she's going to be speaking about a land rights issue and, and some protests that have been happening. And she'll also speak about some elders that have founded um this particular group and of about la and talk about land rights. So stay tuned. Yeah, we'll just go to a song. This band's called um, Alien Wampertry, and the song's called Ti Aru. Um, okay, it's a bit of a like a. What do you call it? Just put it on, Peter. A bit of a song. built to hook you. That thought process was all about how do we consume as much of your time and conscious attention as possible.
speaking with Brett Collins about the Rapid Build Dorm project. Sounds um, pretty pretty crazy. Hello, Brett. Welcome to the program. Yes, good day, Marissa. Hi, Brett. Good day, Peter. Yeah, so Brett, tell us what's been happening. I mean, I did mention earlier on in the intro to our show that uh, Justice Action was doing a report and doing quite a lot of extensive work. Can you explain what this Rapid Build Dorm is? Is it in New South Wales and what's the background? Well, look, it's, it's actually an absolute horror. Like anyone who's spent some time in a in a cell uh, would um, <laughs> could barely imagine what it'd be like to be with another twenty four um, prisoners all in the same dormitory together. I um, mean, it's a shocker. And um, we're talking about maximum security prisoners uh, held uh, together, eight hundred, right, in those sort of conditions. Now, when we first heard about it, we went, "Oh no, they can't be serious," but um, they were. And um, and they cobbled together, together at a very uh, rapid rate, and um, and so they uh, next moment it was fait accompli, and we were battling hard to stop it from uh, from opening. We at one stage we had lawyers working at some sort of uh, a, a, a Supreme Court um, intervention. Um, but it just wasn't possible. We were looking for things like the environmental study and a whole range of other breaches that they had uh, definitely had uh, had uh, been engaged in, but we weren't able to get the lawyers in on time, and, and so we've got 800 prisoners now in these dormitories. So we've um, uh, this inquiry allowed us a chance to um, to cross-examine the authorities about uh, why it had happened and, and what were the basis of uh, uh, their having decided to do it. Hey, Brett, um, that there's... Dormitories like that in, in the United States, isn't there? Or no, sorry, the, the decision itself. You mean with to, to build it? Is that what the question? No, no. What he's saying, was he? What he's asking is, do they have that that type of dormitory style in in America? I see. Now, look, there are several jails in, in America that um, have done it, but every time it happens, uh, there have been all sorts of chaos because what, what oh. you end up having is you have a number of people all um, bullying others and, and people just getting really angry at each other. So, yeah. so instead of having a private space where you know, at least a cell means you either by yourself or you maybe with another one or two other people um, where you can actually you know all talk to, and together and, and you know, deal with each other well, um, yeah. you know, dormitory you know, puts all that aside and you've got, you've got uh, well, here in New South Wales, 25 people together. And um, so, look, it's failed overseas, and the only reason they're bringing it here in, in, uh, into New South Wales was because they hadn't uh, worked out how many prisoners they'd have. They suddenly um, uh, left with a, like a, an overwhelming number of people they were putting into jail without any capacity to, to build a, a cell um, to, to carry them. So they then said, well, let's do the rapid build um, prefab job. And um, so effectively they put them in almost like a tent, but it's a great steel tent. Oh, uh, right. and, and amazingly expensive. I mean, the, the other the amazing thing about this, <clears throat> these dormitories is they, they're costing almost half a million dollars per prisoner. Hmm. So what do you mean a tent, Brett? Well, I mean, look, they actually talked to us. They, they discussed um, with us what their motivation was to, to, um, to, uh, to build them because we said to them, hang on, you're paying almost half a million dollars per prisoner there, $177 million for 400 prisoners. And, and that, that is almost the same as if it were a normal cell. 
and say, why are you doing this? How could you justify it? They said, well, look, we had no choice, but um, we, at one stage we were thinking about erecting tents um, to hold people. Oh, my um, God. That's right. That's what they, and, then, uh, and then they said, well, you know, we could build these rapid build um, um, prisons and in a short period of time. It was um, the same cost as if it were normal jars, but you know, unfortunately we are left to, to do this, and so this, here's what we have. We'll throw some goodies into it, they said. And so, so the goodies are, well, uh, pretty illusory, actually. Um, they've got a, uh, at the moment, they have uh, computers, um, but they're not properly uh, uh, prepared, not prob- no, no full function. And what we had been promised before was there'd be um, access to the internet, uh, so people could send emails to their families and, and also could receive you know, external counselling and education and things like that. Those things haven't happened yet. Okay, but um, and so far they haven't even got keyboards to go with the computers. They just have have touch screens. Oh. Um, uh, but you know, you know they they might throw some goodies into this one. But everyone, everyone inside the dormitories are just horrified by it. They just how many people? How many prisoners to a dormitory? But twenty five to dormitory, and they got and, and each one of the each one of the uh, jails um, have got four hundred. So four hundred in each separate jail. One one up at Sastock, and one out at Wellington, which is far west. And so, uh, effectively, they're just uh, built on a on uh, on a uh, part of a farmland, and oh. just they just dump dump these uh, inside existing prisons and and made new dormitory jails and started started away hundred eight hundred new cells. Are they um, sorry, Brett? Are they um, bunk beds or just you know one single bed or? Uh, this, this single story. Like we actually went in there, so we went. We actually had a, had a chance to uh, to go through there. So uh, I was a member of the Community Justice Coalition. I went with uh, John Dowd, who was former Attorney General here in New South Wales, and, and Elizabeth Everett, who was the uh, former Chief Justice of the Family Court. And uh, and so the three of us went through and did the inspection, talked to the prisoners, and then had a, and also talked to the officers, talked to the um, education staff, looked through the whole place, and then and then did an official report, which went into this into this um, special inquiry for the upper house uh, just a week and a week and a half or so ago so so basically corrections have have organized this well they did they they actually they had set it up and it took only about a year to build so that was the attractive part of it as i said the cost was almost the same as if it was a full jail but the conditions inside for prisoners are just appalling it means you you know any any person uh, uh, snoring and that's a, a constant problem in these areas. The 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 um, each of the cubicles are, are have only got a, a wall a meter and a half high, right? And it's oh. about um, two meters wide and three meters long, and they're sitting uh, all no, head to head, four four at a row at a, at a row, and then and then um, set set out in a in a, in a quite a tight uh, a compact group. So anybody uh, you know, snoring in one area is heard by the other twenty four. And um, and in the past we had a like I had a serious instance. Well, sorry, more than serious. A man was killed, and um, when yeah. when his uh, his cellmate was so irritated by him snoring, he yeah. just beat him up. And uh, and so uh, and so was uh, a guy who was you know, about two years ago. It happened, and so uh, horrified everyone. And so you know, so, so that's an example of the sort of thing that can happen when you've got people living in close proximity to each other and without any privacy, no chance to you know, to you know to be by yourself at all. Just that is terrible, Brett. I mean, it's it it seems, and even 
with the the dignity of even going to the bathroom. You know what what happens with all the toilets and everything? Can you imagine? Well, you no. Know, look, they have. They've got six toilets that are there, so you can go in the toilet and close the toilet. Um, you know, the toilets are intended for you know, sort of um, well, share the amount amongst six people, and you've got you know people can go in and out. So that that's there, and they have a a, a joint uh, kitchen where you can you, know, you have access to. They've got a fridge and still and, though. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, it's like a it's like a, you know it's a big what's well, a big dormitory. Um, uh, but they close the external area at night, so you only have. Um, but you are allowed out for longer than normal, so that instead of locking you out at three thirty in the afternoon, you've got until nine at night to to walk out in a yard outside. And so there, you know, there's some things that uh, Fair you know, have a little bit of benefits. But you know, the, the loss of a, a private space to have, um, uh, you know, have noise, uh, somebody coughing, and to have to put up with that in the middle of the night and have the disturbance of people uh, feeling as though you, people looking at you to stand up and yeah. then to have anybody else looking at you oh gee that's that's such a, a degrading living situation that uh, you know they look they were they were apologizing for themselves they said look we had no choice but you know it's really bad management and so uh, you know and uh, you know really poor that's for sure it's quite difficult isn't it because the, it's there is the the question of all the the degradation and everything but it's also about Fitting more and more prisoners into these in these rapid build dorms, rather than spending money on innovative programs to help people. Well, that's right. I mean, look, when you realise how much money that is, you know, that's uh, almost two hundred million dollars in each of those uh, each of those jails. Now, you know, they, that money could have just as easily been spent out in the community with um, building a TAFE college and and making sure people have got things to do. I mean, people don't go to jail because you know they're they're you know scallywags and rotten people. They've got you know, nothing to do, a whole range of social problems, and they need need a hand. And that money could have been spent for education, health purposes, a whole range of stuff dealing with drug people's drug use and that sort of stuff. Now, everybody knows that now, um, but there's a big industry around prisons, and, and here was a good example of, of uh, ways in which they could spend it. But, but this inquiry, the inquiry was, was looking at two things, actually. One was the, was the dormitory prisons, um, and then the other part of it was about privatisation. Uh, because that was the uh, there was a major exposure in the in the media about two or maybe nine months ago when um, some people had um, had done put up on YouTube some prisoners put up on YouTube um, they had some some drugs and they had also a, a knife and so and they took a photograph inside jail and yeah. then put that up on YouTube and so and it exposed the private jail of Parkley. As um, as having uh, being loose in security and um, and so and so after that the government were all oh, that was embarrassing and they decided to hold this inquiry which were, which was mm. looking at privatisation and the dormitory prisons. So what's the connection there, Brett? Well, the, the connection is both about prisons. That's what it's really about. The, luckily, um, the dormitory prisons uh, aren't privatised. So at least Good. that's a, a benefit. But the the issue about private prisons and and how poorly they are, yeah. are dealing with uh, with the people inside um, that that really was well and truly exposed. There was a whole lot of really, like really good evidence about you know, how um, how they were limiting the sort of services that prisons were getting. Um, there was um, no, but you know, to have a private jail is just such a such a you know, a, a shocking thing to do. Absolutely, actually. shocking thing. You know, to to make to make money out of uh, other people's uh, uh, distress. You know, it's, it's morally wrong. It's a it's yeah. a job. It's a job for the the states, not a job for for.
for a multinational company to try and uh, get a benefit from it. And, and of course, you know, the, the you know the more people go to jail, the more money they make. You know, they so there's uh, a whole range of um, uh, you know disbenefits right, um, which work against the community that uh, major uh, companies would try to exploit. You know, the more more people in jail, more um, and more crime. That's better for them, but not better for us. Capitalising on human misery, basically. Yeah, that's right, and and so you know, so like you'd um, expect that uh, the general community member would would recognise it for what it is. It's uh, it's um, you know, it's really a form of modern slavery, really, and uh, and so uh, and of course in the, in the whole process they're cutting costs. That means things like educational um, services are reduced. Um, you know, food is less. They don't even have toilet paper when they want toilet paper. Um, so there's it's really you know, there's a major exposure on how um, how slack they are in the in the uh, park. Jail and some um, and let alone security issues. You know, they, were, they were saying that um, the prison officers themselves were bringing in drugs and allowing um, uh, prisoners to carry weapons. And you know, it showed you, um, you know, they were uh, dealing with minimum uh, standards, uh, minimum interest, and um, and trying to uh, uh, exploit it as much as possible, as much as they could. So Justice Action has actually done some inspections and actually spoken to inmates. What's what what will be happening now? What will Justice Action do now? Well, what we did following the inquiry is we went went through all the transcripts of what people said um, at the inquiry. So we we're, we're now compiling our own report because uh, what what um, happened was in the dormitory prison, for example, there was a lot of money spent, um, but then the design itself was never uh, it would never run past any prisoners. The people who are going to be living in there uh, had never been consulted about what uh, what form it could have been. So what we're doing now is we're preparing a report on on what the inquiry drew up, and then proposing a redesign of the dormitory. Right, a design where the people can have their own internal space and actually lock it up as well. So we're working on that now, and um, we'll go back to the inquiry and say to the inquiry, okay, now you haven't completed, completed your report, but we have some recommendations now based upon the information, and here's some design styles that we thought would actually suit it better, and the prisoners would be happy to help you in that redesign as well. doesn't compromise security and gives prisoners what they want. And what, what are some of these recommendations, Brett? Well, the recommendations, first of all, is that, is that uh, uh, the, the design should be one which in, includes the people who are living there. That's a really basic idea. And that, that also that the prisoners themselves should have their own committee and they can also decide you know, who lives where, in what area, with whom. Now, they're the yes. sort of, sorts of uh, uh, social uh, uh, responses to imprisonment that mean people take responsibility for um, their space themselves and the responsibility for, you know, for each other. And that's a community-building exercise. That's exactly what, what um, uh, prisoners at least um, uh, could be doing to, um, to lessen the damage that's done. So you know, they're, they're, they're the proposals we're putting forward, and we're making our own recommendations. We're assessing the evidence ourselves and going to put, put back to the committee, well, this is what we think comes out of it. And, um, and before you make your report we've given you our report thank you so much brett and and, and also before we before we actually finish because we've got um an aboriginal activist coming on next from wa um but just wanted to also say about the family the fact that a lot of the prisoners have been transferred away from family too who are unable to visit them Yes, and that's such a bad thing to to do that and not recognise the Im, Im, importance of you know, family coming in to see people on a weekly basis uh, to be in close contact. That's such a destructive thing. So yes, um, that's all uh, uh, counter um, uh, uh, to the community interest. And so uh, there's a lot of work to be done for sure. There's no question about that, Marissa. 
Thank you so much, Brett. Please keep up the good work. And, and just can you, we just have the Justice Action website in case people want to have a look. Yes, absolutely. So it's www.justiceaction.org.au. And if people want to send us letters, very happy to, to receive letters. They can register for our Express as well. If they send, they send their letters to, to PA Box 386, Broadway, um, New South Wales, 2007. So and PA Box 386, New South Wales, 2007, and we always respond to them. That's great, and that's for people that don't have internet, you know, for people in prison as well. Yep. Brett, thank you very much indeed, and I'm sure we'll have you back very soon. Very good. Thank you, Mercer. Thank you, Peter. Thanks, Brett. Thanks a lot. Take Bye. care. Bye, guys. Bye-bye. Um, that was Brett Collins from Justice Action um, speaking about the rapid dorm prisons and looking at overcrowding and all sorts of um, very, very um, pertinent issues and looking at the, the human rights of prisoners. And we're going to be speaking with Marianne McKay shortly. And you're back with the Do and Time you're back with the Do and Time show. Yes, we have just had some technical difficulties, so apologies to listeners. We actually were off air for a while, but we will now um, read out some articles. I'm afraid that Marianne McKay has not been available. Uh, it's approximately four thirty five. So we still need, the show must go on despite what's happening. But um, anyway, let me read you an article from Human Rights Watch. And uh, this is about the nightmare lives of Indigenous prisoners in Australia. On International Day of World's Indigenous Peoples, government should address marginalised group. And this is written by Kriti Sharma, who is a senior researcher, Disability Rights Division. A prisoner lies in his solitary confinement cells in the safety unit at Lotus Glen Correctional Centre, northern Queensland. Prisoners in solitary confinement typically spend 22 hours or more a day locked in small cells, sealed with solid doors without meaningful social interaction with other prisoners. Most contact with prison and health staff is perfunctory and may be wordless. Um, 2017, Daniel um, for Human Rights Watch. The senior officer stood on my jaw while the other officer hit my head in and restrained me. They said, you don't run this prison, we do. And they cut my clothes off. They left me naked on the floor of the exercise yard for a couple of hours before giving me fresh clothes. For Wuru, not his real name, an Indigenous prisoner with a psychosocial disability, mental health condition, the unspeakable is almost routine. As an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander man with a disability in an Australian prison, Wuru was tragically accustomed to being locked up in solitary confinement, facing physical abuse and hearing racial slurs from prison officers. More than 35 years after the United Nations first instituted an International Day of the World's Indigenous Peoples, Australia's Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples continue to be left behind. People with disabilities in prisons across Australia are at serious risk of sexual and physical violence and are disproportionately held in solitary confinement for 22 hours a day. The researcher visited 14 prisons across Australia and heard story after story of Indigenous people with disabilities whose lives have been cycles of abuse and imprisonment without effective support. The result is Australia's prisons are disproportionately full of Indigenous people. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples make up just 2% of the population, but they represent 28% of the full-time adult prison population. 
Multiple forms of disadvantage mean that they are more likely to live in out-of-home care, end up homeless, have earlier contact with the police and end up in prison more frequently than their non-Indigenous peers. Within this group, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples with disabilities are even more likely to end up behind bars. Once in prison, their lives continue to be rife with racism and abuse. Due to a lack of training, custodial staff often misinterpret the behaviour of a prisoner with a disability and respond in a punitive rather than supportive manner. The Australian Government should commit to make it, making it a priority to address abuse against and meet the needs of Indigenous prisoners with disabilities. That includes working closely with organisations of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and people with disabilities to develop culturally appropriate resources and training materials for prison staff, service providers, police and the, and the judiciary. The government should fund representative organisations to provide specialised and culturally appropriate support to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples with disabilities in prison. And I thought I'd read that out and that was actually from Human, Human Rights Watch. And yep. yep. Um, yeah, you're with FreeCR eight five five AM. Um, I've got a like an announcement. Um, letter writing workshop, prisoner letter writing workshop, Saturday the twenty fifth of August two PM. U I R L info shop, twenty eighth twenty eight B Ashley Street West Footscray. It's right near Tottenham Station. Um. Starts, yeah, so um, starts at two o'clock. So it starts at two o'clock. It starts at two o'clock, yeah. So, is anyone interested? Um, just rock up or just um, contact info shop IRL info shop at gmail.com. Um, there's a solidarity, um, costs like five or ten dollars to go to Anarchist Black Cross Melbourne, which all the funds will probably go somewhere good towards some political prisoners or arrestees um, yeah. or whatever or aboriginal just in custody whatever's there it's approximately 440 um I, i'm just going to read out another article um at, at this stage and this article is an ex excerpt from nit tv and they have some great commentaries and news stories on indigenous peoples and it's entitled um, Indigenous and South Sudanese Leaders Say It's Time to Stand Together. Titan D. Brun and his friend, Crin, led the rally at Channel 7. So I'll just start off reading this. Um, a teenager subjected to a violent street attack speaks exclusively to Knit TV to try and change the African gang's narrative. And that's by Ma Madeline Heyman Raber. And the source is the point. Um, that was written on the 10th of August, 2018. On July 16th, a 14-year-old South Sudanese boy was stabbed twice in bushland near Melton in Melbourne by two youths of, of um, Costasian appearance. And I think they mean white people. For legal and privacy reasons, NITV will refer to him as John. John has been in hospital for the last three weeks. He's had two operations and still needs one more on his kidney. He can hardly walk at the moment, but he is alive and home with his family. That was the worst feeling in my life, you know. I had two holes in my stomach. I thought, what the hell, what am I going to do? Like I didn't know what to do, John told Nick TV. I was on the floor, I looked dead. 
and my friend, I looked up and like he was traumatised. I saw in his face he didn't know what to do either and everyone was just crying. You haven't heard about it on the news because it was never reported this way. In fact, it was hardly reported at all. John chose to speak exclusively to Knit TV because he believes if he doesn't, nothing will change for his community. The stories are hyped up. You never know, like maybe that didn't happen. They just make it sound bigger. South Sudanese gang, what is that, you know? Apex. How is everyone apex? Like, what the hell? What is that? This is not hmm. fair. Then when white people do criminal stuff, you don't see it on the news. Low key. John speaks exclusively to Knit TV. In fact, just 1% of the total offenders in the state are Sudanese-born, including South Sudanese, with 71% being Australian-born. The South Sudanese people make up just 0.07% of the population of Victoria and 0.5% of the population of Australia. John claims that following the incident, the police tried to lock up his friend who had simply been trying to help. I was so close to losing my friend, like, you know, I nearly die, and now, like, he's getting locked up. What did he do to get locked up? He was just trying to help me, you know, he said. In 2007, a similar attack occurred on a teenager in Melton following a comment by former Minister for Immigration, Kevin Andrews. Kevin Andrews, the former Minister of Immigration, made that comment about the Sudanese that they're not integrating into the Australian society. Vice Chairman of Victoria's South Sudanese Community Association, AWAN Madhu, said, That was well received by some vigilante and far-right groups. They took the law into their own hands and one of the Sudanese guys was attacked in Melton, similar to John. It was an attack, it was a barrage and after that the offenders were not caught by the police and the incident, nothing was done about it. Following the attack on the teenager, the offenders sent racist text messages and made phone calls to boy's brother. The attack came just days after the funeral of Leap Goni, an 18-year-old South Sudanese man who was bashed to death in a racist, racist attack. The mother of Leap Goni at a recent Channel 7 rally. Since 2007, the African gang's narrative has been running in the media, with it seemingly reignited by recent comments made by Federal Minister for Home Affairs and Immigration Peter Dutton. The Victorian public is really outraged by some of the goings-on. The reality is people are scared to go out to restaurants at night time because they're followed home by these gangs. Home invasion and cars are stolen, Mr Dutton said on during an interview on 2GB radio in January. So how does the Sudanese community believe this has affected their youth? 20-year-old organiser of the recent rally at Channel 7's Melbourne office, Titan de Bruin, rejects the word gangs. But he says it's no surprise to him that South Sudanese youth act out. As well as intergenerational trauma, offensive depictions of South Sudanese youth in the media, especially on Channel 7's Sunday night recent segment, do not help. I mean, if you tell a child that there's something like every single day of their lives, they keep on telling them, they keep on telling them, they're going to start believing it, Mr Deburn said. And it's going to do damage to how they see themselves and their own self-image. The South Sudanese community sees similarities with how Indigenous Australians are treated by the legal system. There's a high number of the young South Sudanese now incarcerated in prisons, and some of them are being imprisoned for minor offences, similar to Aboriginal young people who are experiencing the same thing, Mr Madhu said. So when I look at it, race is clearly playing a role in this, and it's the same thing in America as well. Mr Madhu agrees. He cites the Elijah Doherty case as an example. One of the great examples is the Aboriginal boy who was killed in Western Australia a few years back. That boy 
didn't get a, you know, he was murdered. The guy who murdered him wasn't even given, didn't even deserve a fair justice, he said. So when I look at these cases, they're very similar in a way because now this, our Sudanese community are experiencing exactly what the Aboriginal people are experiencing. Despite Victoria Police telling the media that these children are not gangs, the media narrative has continued. Standing together, Aboriginal Victorians have long been working with the South Sudanese community. The South Sudanese community, we actually need to connect with the Aboriginal community and we are already having a working relationship with them. Mr Madhu said. But the thing is, we are taking a fight that we're not winning. The Aboriginal people have tried. They never won. The African Americans have tried that and they're not winning. That's the thing. So it's a system which is a system that needs a holistic approach in order to fight this system. It's a systemic issue. That's how I can look at it. A woman stands in solidarity with the South Sudanese community. While they're a strong community, they are a small community. And Greens MP Lydia Thorpe has called for Indigenous Australians to stand in solidarity with the South Sudanese. Mm. I think that some of our politicians need to take a good hard look at themselves and stop being racist and do the job that you're meant to be doing and that's serving all Victorians in a way that isn't racist and in a way that's more inclusive, she said. I invite all African people, every person of colour, to come into Parliament, come and see me, you know. Let's mix it up. Let's get as many black fellas in this place as we possibly can. And isn't that a lovely ending of that article? And it's it's always good to have um, strong Aboriginal women like Lydia Thorpe being a, the Greens M- MP. And it's it's horrible what's actually happening to the Sudanese community. Oh, yeah, it's true. Yeah. There is one thing I do want to talk about um, very, very briefly. It's approximately 4.47 and you're listening to the Doing Time show. Is it with the letter writing workshop on Saturday? Um, yep. It's not just about letter writing. It's also going to be about looking at what is a political prisoner, looking at how we can help political prisoners. So if you, when you do rock up, up there, you know, it's aw- awesome to write letters and there is going to be a practical workshop on how to do that. But it's also about how we can actually connect with prisoners on the inside. Yeah, and, that's right. And looking at, you know, um, what is a political prisoner? What constitutes a political prisoner? Mm. How can we help them? And that is um, the thing that is important, not just about writing letters. It's about offering support to the people inside. Yeah. So I just wanted to um, let listeners know what that context is. Um, and there will be, I believe, um, it's, it's Braille friendly, and isn't it, Peter? Yeah, yep, yeah. yep. Braille friendly. And um, if we, there, there was a sign saying there's um, Auslan interpreter. Interpreted, but I don't think there will be. But um, possibly we, we not. We'll w- see. Work around that. Yeah, it's approximately four forty-nine. We've got about a couple of minutes left of our show now. Are we able to play CDs or not, Peter? Oh, I'll just play another song from that band. Um, yeah, because we, we're having some difficulty with uh, announcements okay. and stuff. So we'll this just is, play um, some music. Oh, uh, that's it. Alien weaponry again.
and you're back with the Doing Time show. And it's approximately 4:53. I'm just going to read out another article, and it's in the. It was in the Daily in August, and it's called "Traditional Owners Locked Out of Nuclear Waste Vote." News. The head of the Adamantha, and I'm going to spell this. A-D-N-Y-A-M-A-T-H-A-N-H-A, Traditional Lands Association, says the majority of Adathia people have been denied a vote on a proposed radioactive waste management facility near the town of Hawker in the Flinders Ranges. Stephanie Richards um, is the woman that wrote that. Um, Hokina Waterhole is a sacred Adamantha site and is located eight kilometres away from the proposed radioactive waste management facility at Wollabina Station. Wollabina Station, located approximately 30 kilometres northwest of Hawker on country, has been shortlisted by the federal government for a facility that will permanently hold low-level nuclear waste and temporarily hold intermediate-level waste. It is one of three sites, the other two situated close to Kimber, that were shortlisted by the federal government to store nuclear waste. The selection process is entering its final stages with a postal ballot beginning on August 20th to measure community support for the three nominated sites. But ATLA CEO Vince Kilthcard said the voting guidelines were disrespectful to traditional owners as the majority of Anamatha people do not live close enough to the proposed Warbina site to be eligible to vote. The voting range includes residents of the Flinders Rangers Council and those who live within a 50-kilometre radius of the Wallabina site. According to Kilthcard, there are approximately 2,500 people in, in total, but only about 300 Adamantha people who live in the voting range. Kilthcard said about 50 Adamantha people who lived outside the voting range had expressed interest in voting, but when Atla asked Federal Resources Minister Matt Canavan during a consultation trip to Hawker last week if those people could be granted a vote, Kilthcard said Canavan told him that only those living in the prescribed voting range could participate. It's a crazy situation, Kilthcard said. This is Adana country and it is a very important place to the people, to the nation. People have strong connections to land. There's a large amount of people, many who don't live on the land, but they go back on a regular basis to travel around the land. A spokesperson from the Department of Industry, Innovation and Science said the vote was set following extensive consultation with the community. The spokesperson said if anyone in was to fall outside the voting area, they could put in a submission, which would be considered. The ballot will be one of a number of inputs that will contribute to the assessment of community support, which was also drawn on public and private submissions and feedback from stakeholders the spokesperson said. The views of the traditional owners of land around the site are being directly sought and provided to the Minister as part of his decision-making process. This includes the views of ATLA and expressed through its board. But Kulthkard said he was disappointed that Canavan had not consulted with all ATLA members during his consultation visit. He said Adamatha people had been locked out from the vote despite holding native title rights over the land. Canavan is saying this will strengthen our culture, that this will be good for us. But what it is actually doing is punishing the environment. This mm. is a place where we have gone to get bush tucker, where we have come as traditional owners for thousands of years. They've shown us disrespect and this is very hurtful. The proposed site holds sacred meaning for the people as it is located close to the Honkina waterhole and ancient burial sites. The people voted against the nuclear waste site at an Atla AGM in March. However, 
Some people had indicated they support the facility during a Senate Economic Reference Committee public hearing last month, citing increased job opportunities as a potential benefit. Wollabina Station co-owner and former Liberal Party President and South Australian Federal Senator Grant Chapman nominated the station as a potential site. Chapman is a supporter of, of, um, of nuclear waste in Australia and chaired a Senate committee into the subject during his time as a senator. The proposed repertory would take up 1-5% to 5 of the property. Last month, the federal government tripled the incentive package for the community that hosts the nuclear waste repertory. The government had promised to spend more than $10 million in the district where the facility is built, but under new incentives announced by Canavan, the government increased funding to $31 million. The new incentives include $20 million to deliver long-term infrastructure projects, $8 million in training programs for locals and businesses to benefit from the construction and operation of the facility, and up to $3 million over three years and for Indigenous skills training and cultural heritage protection. What a load of bullshit. Yeah. Um, this is just disgusting. The technical um, issues over. I'm finished. The technical Fix. issues are over. That's good. But, yeah, that's the end of that article, and it is connected to prisons because look at this disgusting, what they're doing with nuclear waste. Yeah. But, anyway, um, we're now going to go out with our theme song. Can we play our theme song? Yep. Black Fella, White Fella from the Rumpy Band. Um, technical di- difficulties have now finished, and Beyond Zero is coming up next. Okay. Thank you, and bye-bye. Bye.